0: Super Talk, Mississippi Media Production.
1: Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk, Mississippi.
0: Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk, Mississippi.
2: everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element wealth studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday eve indeed it is yesterday the democrats who have struggled to define woman <laughs> celebrated International Women's Day by awarding the Courage Award to a person who's not a biological woman. Are we surprised?
1: No. I mean, Bruce Jenner won Woman of the Year. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's been a couple years now, but
2: it happened. Shouldn't we just cancel... International Women's Day, if we can't define what a woman is. I mean, like, what does that mean? International, we can't define it, day. It's a thought. Can it get any nuttier than this? I mean, honestly. Don't tempt them. <laughs> it's a hold my beer sort of deal, isn't it? I mean,
1: it? you saw the pictures of the military personnel wearing the dog outfits. I did. What's that all about? Just saying. It could get weirder. She was it's International um, Dog Man Day.
2: <laughs> it's crazy. It's wackiness. On the program today, Dr. Joe Johnsey, Chief Medical Officer at Relias Healthcare, will join Dr. Eric Jordan, Site Medical Director with Forest General Hospital down there in Hattiesburg, Site Medical Director of the Emergency Department, by the way, at Forest General. They'll join the program at 11.05. We'll talk about the current state of health care in Mississippi and the work that Relias has been doing uh, vis-a-vis emergency operations, emergency room operations. And then at 12.05, the Lieutenant Governor of Mississippi, Delbert Hoseman, joins middays. It's... Deadlines down there at the legislature, doing all kind of stuff, and we'll discuss all the high-profile legislation. We're, hard to believe, almost done. Um, we got to get the appropriation stuff done. That's next on the agenda. No action yet that I've seen from the governor with respect to HB 401. That, of course, is... My least favorite legislation of all time, the one that uh, basically puts a big old sign on the state of Mississippi, says, close for business. That's my take on it. That's the one that would restrict the sale of new vehicles in the state to only those brick-and-mortar, independently-owned dealerships with physical locations, of course, in the state. Is that one that we're talking about. Not not crazy about that. So we got that going on, and, and a lot of other stuff as well. Yesterday, we talked extensively about the extension of postpartum coverage under Medicaid from the present two months to 12 months. That now is headed uh, to the Governor's desk for signature. It having passed, wow, little sound coming on from my laptop. It's got a life of its own. But that now has passed the, uh, the Senate, of course, and then the House, headed to the governor's desk for signature. He has, of course, signaled he would support such a measure. So I think at this point it's reasonable to expect he would sign it, and off to the races we go. Again, has not signed the, um, the vehicle bill. The ballot initiative is another one that is a bit perplexing, and I'll ask the lieutenant governor about that one as well. Also, up in Washington, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had a bit of a fall. Wow. Hospitalized. After a fall, and he was at a dinner, a private dinner in D.C. No details at this point as to the extent of uh, Minority Leader McConnell's injuries that I've seen. I haven't seen an update on it. That happened last night, Wednesday evening. It was a, pri- a private dinner at a hotel. Apparently, he tripped, is what's being reported. He is uh, 81 years old.
1: Body doesn't bounce back quite as
2: quickly when you're that old. That's exactly right. And he... Facts a life. I didn't realize that he had polio. Did you know that? As a young child. I
1: want to say I remember hearing that somewhere.
2: And also had, um, like, triple bypass surgery. Yeah. As well. But he's 81 and still kicking. You know, in general, looks to be in reasonably good health for a man his age, I would say. Certainly seems to be more mentally cognizant than the guy in the White House.
1: I just find him funny because he has a whole wall in his office devoted to negative portrayals of him in media.
2: Mitch does? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. He relishes it. That's awesome. Well, I would say his stock went up with me a bit upon learning that. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Adidas, you know who those guys are, don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they make The three them, stripes. <laughs> they make them sneakers. <laughs> and all other stuff. Yeah. They got $1.3 billion of inventory they are unable to sell. That being the Yeezy sneakers. That's after they cut ties, of course, with rapper Kanye West because he made some anti-Semitic remarks. They cut ties with the rapper, and they were paying him a jag of money, as you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, those shoes were $200, 300 $400 a pop. MSRP. Jeez. Well... It looks like they're going to be eating those shoes at this point, and it is having an impact on the company, uh, on its stock, etc. I
1: wonder if we'll have a documentary in 30, 40 years where somebody goes out in the middle of the desert and digs a hole to find all the
2: Yeezy shoes like they did with all the <laughs> E.T. Atari cartridges. <laughs> That's true. The, uh, it's a German company, as you know and they say they're going to take a $527 million hit to their earnings this fiscal year if they can't unload them Yeezy shoes. And there's some other apparel, too, Yeezy branded apparel. So they're a little worried about that. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a high degree of confidence they'll find buyers for the Yeezy product line, what do you think?
1: I mean, if it were any other shoe, they might be able to rebrand it. But if you've never seen a Yeezy, google it 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 is a strange looking shoe It is
2: I agree to the uh with respect to <laughs> the recognition of this transgender individual. It's a male is what it is that is posing to be a female, is what I'm going to call it, received the International Women of Courage Award. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders in neighboring Arkansas says, it's International Women's Day, a good time to remember that Democrats can't even tell you what a woman is. (laughs) Touché. It really is insane. Does that not diminish women, though, when you award the Courage Award? That's why I've been
1: asking this whole time, where are the feminists? Why are they just allowing men
2: to cosplay as women and get away with it? I don't know. But I know this. Democrats working feverishly, overtime, ferociously, to push this trans agenda. It's insane. I I'm I'm struggling with the rationale for that. Um, I'm looking at some protesters <laughs> outside of uh, where the ceremonies were held, and there it's a picture of protesters, and there one is holding a sign. Actually, several are X Y with the symbol the not equal symbol, the equal sign with a diagonal line through it. XY not equal XX. <laughs> Say no to males competing as females. Why are we having this conversation in this country? This is insanity. It's nuts. We'll take a break right here in the Element Well Studios. Coming right back. Stay with us. Go just, uh,
3: shake your leg and do the mess around. I declare, do the mess around.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this on Super Talk, Mississippi.
2: To midday Super Talk, Mississippi, live from the Element Wealth Studios. Well, and don't forget Dr. Joe Johnson and Dr. Eric Jordan on the program at 105. They'll discuss the state of healthcare in Mississippi and then the, the Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman with us at 1205. It doesn't feel like it's just been a an active legislative session to me, Ryan I'm not sure why, maybe it's because the tax reform got so much attention last year, and at this point, it doesn't look like that's going anywhere
1: I don't know. it feels about average for me. I'm hitting about that same level of
2: burnout <laughs>
1: It happens every year happens, doesn't about it? first or second week
2: of March. <laughs> Well, they all run down there and file about what two hundred and fifty thousand bills or something like that, and then we end up with a dozen or so that I guess garner most of the attention and uh and like the the house bill was it what is it ten twenty that sort of reimagines Jackson. <laughs> That's been chopped up in the Senate. That's likely to go back to the House. That's the one, of course, that was uh, initially designed to extend the Capital Complex Improvement District. It would have established a new judicial district where judges would be appointed by the Supreme Court of Mississippi, and it would also extend the jurisdiction of the Capitol Police to patrol the extended area. So the Senate has changed that up a bit. Well, drastically, I think, is a better descriptive term. And if that's likely to end up, it will. It'll end up in conference, and we'll see what the respective members of the chambers can hammer out, if anything. Then we got the ballot initiative, something I felt didn't get passed last year and, and left as just unfinished, and they're still deliberating that one. I'll ask the lieutenant governor about that today.
1: It would be nice, if, especially on that issue, if they could just set the egos aside and find an actual compromise. Why has nobody... Seemingly offered, well, the House wants this number, the Senate wants this number, let's go to the middle.
2: Yeah. i, I tend at least to, a
1: starting point.
2: I tend to agree with you. I, I've also shared my sentiments, as I will today with the Lieutenant Governor, that I think the goal and the rationale for increasing the signature threshold by more than 2x, that in fact the quite the opposite is what will occur I think no I don't think I believe I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to adjust my language there I've been reading a bit about I think versus I believe and it's recommended by experts in communications to use I believe you ever heard that before oh, right? yeah. as opposed to I think It engenders more confidence in the statement exactly right so Correct me when I mess up. I'm going to do better with that. I believe, I do, that for us truly to move Mississippi forward, we have to look in the mirror and be honest. We're not a big fish to the private sector. Big private sector. I'm not talking about to, to the great companies in our, inside our state that rely on customers in our state, buyers in our state. But if you're looking at big entities who are considering a number of states to expand into or expand their present operation in the state, when it's a consumer-oriented expansion, meaning they're looking to, to sell to the citizens that reside in Mississippi, we're not that big. We're not a big catch. And to a great extent, given our status as 50th in virtually every economic measurement, we need them worse than they were. They need us, and I think we should we should have an eye on that in policymaking. Now I know where the governor stands on this. I've talked to him about it. He gets it. He realizes that. He wants to make Mississippi. The best state. He said it on the campaign trail, and I believe he's held fairly closely to that commitment. He wants to make this the best place to set up shop, to create a business, to expand a business, to invest. And, and um, I, he sees that as the proper role of government is staying out of the way. So I applaud him on that, and I'm with him on that. But I don't feel like that the members of our legislature quite understand that we don't call the shots. We don't have the stroke that we'd like to have. We, we got to do it better <laughs> than many of the other states that do have more to offer. We're getting there. We're making progress towards that. But in the meantime, we got to be a little hat in hand. And that's why I rail on this vehicle, Bill. I just think that sends the wrong message there. I think there's a whole new industry that's around the corner because I think there are many entrance, well-funded organizations that are going to dramatically disrupt the vehicle industry. We already have a pretty good reputation there. Let's keep it going. And that's why I think that we should be... Uh, more realistic about just where we stand. Uh, Not by any stretch am I trying to be critical of our state. I'm just messaging reality. I love our state. I chose to start my business here, build it here, raise my family here, because I enjoy the quality of life and the lifestyle. That's what we have to sell. And we need to continue to promote that and sell it as an asset because it 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 is it's a benefit it's a differentiator and when whether it's consumers or large companies when they're making decisions and the decision is between op- various options or among options, you start looking at. The features benefits, as we call it in the IT industry, the feeds and speeds, <laughs> what, how we describe technology. What are our feeds and speeds versus the other states? We have so much to brag about, so much to boast about, so much good. But, but at the end of the day, we, we need them, the, the bigger uh, entities, more than they need us. They have choices. We have to be aware of that and factor that into our policy making. It's absolutely true. Thomas has already sent about four or five hundred texts this morning, I think, in the 30 minutes we've been on. What would you say about Medicaid expansion here? I have to scroll backwards on the ceasefire text line. What did he say here? So if we agree Medicaid expansion or postpartum won't fix health care, why pursue it and only to continue to add to the problem If hospitals knew no one was going to cave and send them more money, wouldn't they likely start working on solutions? Can it be argued that the prospect of more welfare is what's keeping the core issue from being addressed? No. You're once again missing the point totally, Thomas, is that until we change EMTALA and until we're willing as a society to repeal EMTALA. And until we're willing as a society to say, I'm sorry, if you can't pay, you have to die. And that's what it, it appears to me, Thomas, that's where you stand. That if they can't pay, sorry, you don't get service. The typical business does that. We're not likely, for example, Rhino, to, to air advertising on this network. If they ain't paying their bills, won't work. Hospitals, on the other hand, say, you're sick, you can't pay, we'll still take care of you. Happens every day across the country. That's the dilemma. That nobody... When you're
1: talking about the amount of money involved, it's the same as walking on a car lot and going, I think I'll have
2: that one, and just hopping in and driving off. It's true. Yeah. You, don't, you can't pay? Okay, well, we'll cover it. No problem. That, so that's the distinction that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, as they say, metaphorically, that it doesn't seem like that enters into the conversation. Uh, Mo says, I just tuned in. <laughs> I've been working on the farm this morning. What is Thomas complaining about today? How much uncompensated care is actually life-saving? Okay, so, Thomas, you're saying if it's not life-saving, we don't need to provide it. What you're missing out on is the amount. Coming right back.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Oh, would you like to swing on a
1: star? Jar and
4: be better off than you are
3: Lulu. or would you rather be a fish
4: a fish won't do anything but swim in a brook
2: he can't write his name or read a book to fool the people is his only thought and though he's slippery he still gets where we come up with the bean cross that sort of life is what you
1: wish. i actually had this stuck in my head last night
3: you may grow up to be a fish
1: yes. <laughs> Of all the earworms, I have this.
2: (laughs) I figured I'd play it and try to get it out of my head. Oh, gosh. So, um, on the ceasefire text line, that's 601-879-4395. Ben from Madison says, I forget the rules, but there can't be many days left for HB 401 to be vetoed. I think that's right. Seems like it's five. It's the number, five days. If the five governor... days while
1: the legislature is in session. So okay. if they gavel in on a Saturday, that counts. I don't think they usually gavel in on a Sunday, so that doesn't usually count.
2: Okay. And how long has it been? Three, maybe? i have to think about it. We'll have to look it up. And also, Ben says, I was pleasantly surprised to see the House amend the ballot initiative process Back to the previous signature threshold, an amendment was offered by Republican House member Joel Bumgar from Madison. Uh, He added an amendment to reduce the number of signatures to the same as in the process, which was, of course, overturned by the Supreme Court, 12% of the total vote in the last the most recent gubernatorial election, based on our last election in 2019, that amounts to just under 110,000 signatures. The Senate version, of course, would require 12% of registered voters. That puts the signature threshold at about 240,000. So you got to believe this thing is Going to conference, of course, and we'll see what we get out of that. I still believe, I didn't say think there, said believe, (laughs) that this, in fact, pretty much ensures that only well-funded large organizations with a serious agenda, and one that they would like to put forth in our state, are likely to be the only parties that could get a measure on the ballot, anything that would be homegrown, so-called grassroots-driven, likely not to materialize just because of the expense of collecting 240,000 signatures. And the rationale I've heard from those who support the higher signature threshold is to, in fact, prevent large out-of-state entities from inserting themselves into policy-making in Mississippi. I think this assures that's the only folks that could. It's just the opposite. We'll see where that lands. I appreciate the text there, Ben. He should be home sitting on his porch swatting flies, says Tom in Carthage. Who's that?
1: Probably talking about McConnell.
2: Oh, <laughs> Well, you're you're right. Some of McConnell's votes make me concerned about his mental state, says Mike in Gulfport. I share your concerns, Mike, about the three big measures since Biden has been president that he has, along with a handful of other Senate Republicans, supported, that being the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill. How's that going so far? How's that working out?
1: Infrastructure seems to be crumbling still. Yeah.
2: Inflation still seems to be uh, sticky. Well, the omnibus bill that um, would spend $1.7 trillion of discretionary funding to keep the government going, again, a situation just before Christmas where Republicans peeled off and supported that. Mitch McConnell led that group. And then the other one is the CHIPS Act. Eighteen or so Republicans. It was either 18 or 19, once again led by Mitch McConnell. He headlined he headlined the group of Republicans on all three of those measures. We shared with you a couple of days ago that the CHIPS Act's got all kinds of strings attached. Are we surprised? Those include the provision of child care by any organization that would apply to receive the government grant money. They've got to provide all sorts of federal government-approved child care to their workers. They've got to (coughs) comply with and pay union wages to many of their workers. They've got to share their profits with the government. If that ain't that's not only socialism, that's more looking like fascism, is it not? It's definitely approaching it. <laughs> I mean, in, in the context of the more classic definition of fascism, where, where government essentially commandeers private sector organizations for its benefit, when you're sharing profits, that seems like fairly blatant, as an example. So that's disturbing. But yet we had 18 Republicans join Mitch McConnell in supporting that measure. Now we see what it's all about. I'm not sure any of these companies will participate. The idea, of course, was come on over here, back to the country, and leave China and make those chips. That was the idea. Noble thought. We saw the... We saw the liability and the threat to the nation during COVID when China shut many of those factories down. It seemed like all the various product shortages we were experiencing as consumers, from consumer electronics to automobiles and just appliances, remember, the, ba- the shelves were bare. And it was like uh, a, a, almost a cut-and-paste refrain We can't get chips. That's all you heard. Can't get whatever you want because we can't get the chips. They're all sitting here in the factory waiting for the chips. And then we realize, wait, all the chips, or many of them, are made abroad in the Pacific Rim. Many, of course, in Taiwan. That's why China's got their eye on Taiwan. But all the shutdowns uh, during COVID pretty much put the chip makers out of business, and that resulted in massive supply constraints. So those zany members of Congress come up with this idea, well, we're just going to give these chip manufacturers $500 billion to build factories domestically. Oh, by the way, You're going to have to pay union wages for every worker basically be in compliance with prevailing wages uh, that you see in in federal contracting union. You're going to have to provide child care to your workers, and you're going to have to share your profits. Unbelievable.
1: So basically, Mm -hmm. those chips are
2: going to cost an arm and two legs. Correct. So, which uh, brings me to Joe Biden's proposal, his budget proposal. (laughs) Not only does it include a raft of new taxes, increased taxes, he's also calling for an increase in pay of federal workers. Seem to recall it's 5.2% is the figure that comes to mind. And that's the, the amount by which he wants to increase pay to federal workers. He wants a twenty-eight percent corporate tax rate. That's well above the twenty-one percent presently in place. Of course, who pays for that? You and me? He wants to seek, he, he seeks to reduce the incentives for companies to book profits in low-tax jurisdictions <laughs> and raise the tax rate on U.S. multinationals' foreign earnings from 10.5 to 21%. Who pays for that? And of course, he wants those coveted 2021 COVID child care and child tax credits going to lower income families. He wants that. Um, He wants to increase funding for child care and early childhood education by $22 billion. That's up 10.5% from the 2023 level. He wants to um, hike defense spending, but he wants to kind of quell it to the single-digit level. He wants to eliminate all sorts of other tax benefits for research and development, which just means less innovation, less capital formation, more inflation. Of course, this is um, this is the left-wing dream that won't materialize, thankfully, because we do have a Republican House that has made it clear they won't support any of this. None of this will happen, but it's an idea of what they want that we should be concerned about. Coming right back. Stay with us.
4: Are
0: we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert.
4: Keep rolling.
1: Three, two,
0: one. On Super Talk, Mississippi.
2: In the Element Wealth Studios, it is a Friday Eve. Looks like the weather's uh, poised to be quite nice for the weekend, according to what Hangers I Fingers crossed. Yeah. I'm headed out of town. I'll be off Monday and Tuesday. I don't think I've had a day off since the session started that I can recall. I have to go back and check. Be good to recharge. Yeah. A little bit of that. need. I mean, it's, it's fine. But... Um, my daughter's on spring break, and I'm going to take her on a little vacation. That's always fun. Yeah. A teacher, you know, in the spring break. It's, it's hard to believe. It's already spring break. Incredible. Or the beaches closed for COVID? or <laughs> Wear a mask on the beach. Isn't that what the, the mask Nazis were saying back when DeSantis opened the beaches during the COVID era? It's a super spreader. They're all going to die. Gene Mendenhall says, good old Wicker voted yes on that also. It's the elite agenda, not to Democrats versus Republicans. The senator, unfortunately, the senior senator from Mississippi did support all three of those bills. The uh, Talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is just chock full with all sorts of Green New Deal stuff and, and uh, social justice efforts. In requirements, and then the the Chips Act in the omnibus spending bill. Can I claim low income folks as dependents on my 1040 tax form? Says Mike from Grand Bay, Alabama. I wouldn't try that. Uh, Biden just seems to want socialism, free education, K college, free Medicare for all. Just frustrating to me, says Mike in Gulfport. Yeah, it is frustrating, and again, you get a glimpse of what they truly think. There's no mention of any sort of spending cuts. Their idea of spending cuts is price controls in Medicare. We're going to force the, the pharmaceutical companies to sell us certain drugs at a dictated price. That's how we're cutting spending. What they're not telling you is that, well, what if the drug companies say, okay, we're not selling them to you? And those on Medicare don't get those treatments, don't get those drugs, those therapies, and they, therefore, don't get their illnesses treated. These are older folks. Maybe that results in shorter lives. It would result in shorter lives. Pain, suffering, et cetera. He doesn't doesn't discuss that side of it. Just unbelievable. He says his, his agenda, his budget, I should say, would cut the national deficit by almost $3 trillion over 10 years. Here's the problem with that. If you just look at it strictly from a mathematical perspective, which makes assumptions about the revenues tax increases will produce, you assume the spending is either fairly constant or declines as a result of Medicare pharmaceutical negotiation. Those are flawed assumptions right off the get-go. You start trying to project revenues, I can just tell you, that's just a joke, honestly. Because you think, well, you see, if we raise the tax rate from this level to that level and just put that on the same amount of revenue, that equals this much more taxes, that ain't how it works, ever.
1: I wonder how much revenue Adidas projected
2: on their Yeezy line. There you go. That's an example. That's a great example. So there, there's so many guesstimates involved in those projections, especially over 10 years. Like, who the hell can figure out what we're even going to be selling five years from now with the incredibly rapid cycle of innovation, new products, old products not being consumed anymore, constant, and a whole panoply of new services that we can't even dream up. So how the heck can you project revenues on that? We we'll plug in this tax and that tax and this many billionaires times this tax and unrealized gain because that's in there too, of course. They're back to that that issue where they want to tax you even if you didn't sell anything, you you actually incurred no gain, but on paper it went up. You got to pay taxes on that paper increase of the value of that asset. That's just wealth confiscation. It's never worked. It's been a dismal failure in every nation where it's been tried, but yet he's pushing for it again. And again, the train seals will just lap it up, yeah, let's go after them rich people, make them pay all the bills, not me, I don't want to pay anything, give me more benefits, give me free childcare, free education, free health care, free this, free that. Next thing you know, they'll be paying you to buy an electric vehicle based on their radical ideology. We're taking a break right here. We've got the news coming your way, and then Dr. Joe Johnson and Dr. Eric Jordan stay with us.
0: And now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your
5: transition now.
0: Now on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Element Well Studios. Joining us now, Dr. Joe Johnson, Chief Medical Officer of Relias Healthcare, and Dr. Eric Jordan, Site Medical Director, Forest General Hospital Emergency Department. Doctors, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, thanks for, for having, us. having us. Yeah, so uh, first, uh, Dr. Johnsey, tell us about Relias Healthcare. I read a bit about your story, it's fascinating.
5: Yeah. Uh, we're uh, one of the fastest growing companies here in the state. Uh, we provide medical services uh, with a number of hospitals uh, all across the state of Mississippi. Uh, kind of grew out of a, a need to uh, help out there at uh, Tupelo, uh, where we're based out of. Uh, the hospital there and going through a difficult transition uh, with the, the former group that was there, um, the CEO of the Facilities just said, uh, Hey, we need some help with the uh, transition here. Can you help us out? Said, Absolutely. Seems like that's
2: starting to get traction as more of a trend in the healthcare industry where, especially larger healthcare institutions, are starting to uh, outsource, uh, for lack of a better term, some of these services. Is that, is that true?
5: Well, I've, I think there's always been um, – uh, th- there are a lot of moving parts in, in a hospital. Sure. There are a lot of things that administrators have to deal with. And I think that there's only so many uh, balls you can keep uh, in the air and and having – um, folks that you can help to partner with to uh, deal with some of those issues uh, you find somebody that you, you feel like you can have some confidence in that can be a strong partner uh, that's who you want to you want to work with you want to associate with and, and deal with those issues uh, where you, you need to to find somebody to, to help manage part of that operation so yeah I think that that's that's always part of it. And and whenever you find that that right partner to deal with uh, that portion of it, then they're going to reach out and do that. And so we've certainly found more and more needs in our uh, particular niche uh, here lately, where uh, especially with the other issues that are going on with nursing shortages and the like, that, hey, we don't need to be dealing with this uh, particular part of the, the staffing matrix as well. So can you help? Handle that for us while we're worried with um, other I- issues that are that are going on, Doctor
4: Jordan. Explain your relationship with Relias. Yeah, I um, I know you were saying outsourcing, but I don't feel like I was outsourced. I'm actually a native of Hattiesburg, sure. And so I work for Relias. I've been with them for three years now, but I'm local. I just happen to be the representative there at Force General, and so I've been able to be there for 22 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when people come in and get their health care from Forest General and come in my emergency department, they're going to see a familiar face, uh, local. Uh, right. It's actually rare that I work a shift that I don't care for somebody that I grew up with or their children or their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took care of some folks last evening on my swing shift uh, that I go to church with. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a, it's a good
2: fit. Got gotcha. you. So we hear a lot about, um, I think the average person does, about emergency rooms being backed up and, and there being long wait times. And it seems like most of the medical uh, institutions, the, health, uh, the hospitals in general, attribute that to just a staff shortage as much as anything. Is it, is it a combination of a physical shortage of, of beds and other assets? Is it a staff shortage or is it a combination of both? There are
4: so many moving parts, I'm not sure we have time to discuss all <laughs> of them. So the the short answer is yes, you're exactly right. But when you come in, there are so many things that are you're dependent upon to get good health care, and it requires x-ray, um, other services lab, Um, so staff certainly, Um, with all those moving parts, everything has to be uh, firing on all cylinders for it to uh, work smoothly.
5: But I think we went through with, with COVID, and the easy answer is always COVID uh, nowadays, you know. But uh, but we did. We went through where normally you'd come to the hospital and you need to be admitted. You stayed for four or five days and you went home. And, and then when you, you wound up needing to be in the hospital for COVID, you stayed for two weeks. And so the hospital wound up backlogging with a lot more patients staying for a whole lot longer. And so um, – the beds in the hospital wound up being occupied a lot longer. People backed up into the emergency department. And so patients who usually came in and got needed to be admitted, they left in an hour or two after mm-hmm. they needed to be admitted, they wound up staying in Eric's emergency department for two or three days, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes uh, waiting for that bed upstairs. And so, yeah, there weren't those beds now when you came in with an emergency to go and be examined and treated in the emergency department. So, we had to figure out over that past two and three years how to take care of patients in a whole different way, in a whole different space, and it looked a lot different for patients.
2: Yeah. So, what's the value proposition? I'm a hospital and I've got an emergency room, and uh, I don't have your company involved in in operating that for me, the, the suite of services that you provide. How do you pitch them? What's your value proposition?
5: Well, I think we're 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 not a one size fits all. Okay. and so that's that's the big thing that we want to say is you you've seen one emergency department, you've seen one emergency department. And so the one solution that somebody might bring is probably not going to be right for your your hospital. And so we want to come and learn about your emergency department. We want to come and learn about what Eric knows about his hospital that he's been at for that long, and we want to adapt. and we want to we want to um, evolve. To what um, is is going on we want to evolve to the pandemic that has changed the way we practice medicine hmm. uh, we want to Uh, now say okay I know we used to take care of this in this particular space but now we're gonna have to take care of this in a chair in the waiting room and so let's do it differently and I know we're used to taking care of this with a with a doc in this place but now we're gonna have to uh, use the rest of our team and our nurse practitioners gonna have to stretch their skills to the top of their licensure and we're gonna have to adapt and evolve and you know maybe you're in a small rural hospital somewhere and, and you can't afford to have the physician be there in person, so we're going to have to train up a, a nurse practitioner, or a physician assistant, get them some better skills, and we're going to have to work remotely with a physician to help back that person up. And so yeah. that's what we're ready to do is to say, "Give us your problem, and we want to come up with a solution to fit what that problem is."
2: Healthcare, of course, like everything else, uh, is highly specialized, and it's um, there are a lot of moving parts, as you as you say, and uh, the human body is complicated. How do you accommodate all the possibilities that might show up in an ER?
4: Um, that's a great question. Um, that's part of the reason I went into emergency medicine. Uh, I guess it was a good fit because I have ADD almost. (laughs) Uh, I like controlled chaos is the best way I can put it. And every day is different because you don't know what's coming through that door. It's not a routine office practice where you see a lot of the same stuff. So um, to answer that question, I, I think you have to constantly be adapting and comfortable with change. Uh, and one of the biggest things we were able to do at force general i don't know what they did everywhere else but we made our waiting room uh, another zone of our emergency department
2: well i heard you just say you might be treating somebody in the chair
4: that's exactly right instead of acting like it usually you would check in if there wasn't a room in the back you sat in that waiting room however during covid and with this crisis we ended up treating that just like another zone in our emergency department and put a provider out there started working to get labs done Hmm. did x-rays would send them to the x-ray department and have them come back to the lobby because they're still in a room and then calling them back into a different room when we got all of their results and that way we were still able to flow and accommodate people and render care right uh, with limited space wow
2: awesome so it it, looking at your um, your history there, uh, Doctor, it's, it seems like you've had a very positive tra- trajectory of growth. I mean, it's really exponential. Uh, Dr. Johnson, do you anticipate
5: that that's going to continue? Well, I, I, I could never have imagined that we'd be where we are today. So I, I, I don't know that I can imagine what what tomorrow will bring. Sure. I, I, we're ready for whatever the next challenge is. I certainly think that when you're – Facing some of the crisis that some of the facilities, especially in our state, are uh, facing, they're going to have problems and they're going to need uh, innovative partners to come bring solutions to to try and solve those those crises. So um, that's the right recipe for, yeah. for us to be there. Yeah. So yeah, I would predict that uh, that we're going to have a lot more people that are that are knocking on our door.
2: Is, is the focus presently, though, on providing these services uh, for ERs, for emergency room operations? Emergency departments,
5: yeah. uh, uh, hospital inpatient services, and, uh, and anywhere else uh, okay. that, that, that folks uh, see the need. Uh, do you want to hang around through the break and, and
2: uh, help us understand sort of the state of health care and health care delivery in the state of Mississippi right now? It's a hot topic, as you know. Uh, across the country not just in uh, the state of Mississippi if you guys can hang around we'll we'll talk about that further be happy to we're in the Element Well Studios we're coming right back stay with us
5: The
2: great Steely Dan bumping us into this segment, perhaps their most iconic song. There, Rhino. We are in the Element Well Studios. We're having a chat with a couple of physicians, Doctor Joe Johnson, the Chief Medical Officer at Relias Healthcare, and Doctor Eric Jordan, Site Medical Director for Forest General Hospital Emergency Department. So, the uh, the state of healthcare is is always been obviously a major issue. Uh, from a policy perspective, an economic perspective, uh, and just the incredible dynamics that have shaped care, innovation uh, through the years. But it's become, seems like, more in focus of late because we're seeing lots of reports where hospitals are struggling financially. Not just in Mississippi, and there's been a, a great deal of focus on that. Um, certainly at the state level, from our legislature and, and other interested parties, but nationally. I mean, I've seen reports li- lately where uh, the Cleveland Clinic, the Mayo Clinics, they're losing money. They're upside down. And I think most of their patients are, are um, reimbursed with private coverage, which is supposed to at least keep you in the black financially. This is a big problem, is it not, in, in the state, in the country. You guys got any thoughts on that? What are you hearing in the industry?
5: <laughs> Who wants to take that? Um, <laughs> e- easy uh, questions. Easy questions. Please. <laughs> uh,
4: I don't – I'm not sure what the right answer is unless our insurance companies have st- cut uh, so much on what they pay for that it, is, uh, it was so lean before the pandemic that coming out of it, there's just not a way to turn a profit. Um, I understand that they're in business to make money, too. Uh, they're also supposed to be in the business of providing uh, insurance for people's health care needs, and maybe there needs to be a focus on that and uh, some legislature work that gets us better reimbursement for these hospitals to survive. Providing these
2: same services, it's it's a unique uh, it's unique to this industry, is it not? That there's another party paying the bills for the most part. You, the the customer, um, which is essentially the patient, uh, equivalent in, in a, another business or another style business, with an, of a different model, but in this case, you've got a third party for the most part that's paying the bills. And and then there are multiple third parties that all pay at different rates. The the payer mix, I think, is the terminology used in the in the industry. And you look at the revenue section, because I've done that of some of these major institutions, it, it's complicated, it's perplexing, and it, it makes you wonder how do they fit all that together to make ends meet?
5: Yeah, the way we came about with the economics of healthcare is is really Um, uh, confusing and no other industry faces it the way that healthcare does and if anybody I I mean you know when you you wind up seeing your hospital bill and if you look at what the charges are you get you, you get uh, induced another heart attack after you get treated <laughs> yeah. for the one you came in for, thinking that's what you're going to wind up owing. Yeah. Um, and, and everybody who's submitting those charges knows there's no way in the world I'm getting anywhere. Close to you know 25% of what those charges are uh, from from anybody the insurer or the patient or anybody whatsoever. But uh, we wind up because of this weird system that evolved in healthcare. We have to submit these trumped up charges um, to the to to generate the bill to begin with, to then have them discounted 75, 80, 90% to wind up getting to actually what we're going to collect in the end. Just there, there's no other industry that's, that's like that and so just starting from that uh, idiocracy that that, that is <laughs> good way to put it uh, you know you, you know that things are are, are are just plain foolishness and we ought to sw- wipe things off oh, and man. start over to something that that really has some sort of common sense basis
2: well as a consumer of healthcare care we all are for the most part I have a hard time just figuring out who I owe and how much I owe them Uh, When when you get all those explanation of benefits and bills come out of the wazoo and you don't know, and sometimes they're three and four months after the services have been rendered, and you all of a sudden get this surprise bill, so to speak, and you may or may not owe that to whomever it says you do,
5: and you wait for something different. And the code... Doesn't explain to you no, a layperson I don't know the what the goals, world no. that was that someone did to you or might not have done to you.
4: Yeah. yeah uh, as a physician, I can't understand the explanation of benefits. Yeah. That
2: comes in. So, it's, cra- yeah. it's crazy. it's uh, crazy. so I I just wonder where all that's going. It seems like we've have complicated it further and, and the goals in some of the policy making uh, was to simplify it. I don't think we achieved those goals uh, at at this point. But there are a lot of concerns in the state of Mississippi. We've got 122 is the number that sticks in my head, hospitals, I guess, what are deemed the various categories of hospitals fit into one of those categories. And that's a whole other subject, of course. But And that, um, there have been reports from Dr. Edney, Department of Health, that a large number of rural health care institutions are upside down financially. Now, that number has has receded somewhat. It started out at a higher number than it 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 uh, came in at when they sort of updated the reports. But it's still too many, and there's yeah. still a lot of them that are upside down. Um, And and we could give them some one-time money, as our legislature is talking about doing, but that's not going to permanently solve the problem. We have a lot of un- unreimbursed and under-reimbursed services at the end of the day. We're going in that direction on the revenue side and on the expense side. You got a shortage of labor, which is driving those costs up. I mean, this is the economic dilemma, is it not, in the healthcare industry?
5: Yeah, and and we we just gave it a shot of adrenaline through COVID on that expense yes, side for true. sure. Uh, to say that uh, you know what was already a, you know it was a it was a grocery store margin kind of game to begin with where, where these hospitals were eking out three percent margins maybe to then try and reinvest in facility uh, renewal uh, and and now you 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 close that or you flipped it into into negative margins real quickly and then you, you went through the the, the, the COVID surges and you had labor rates that doubled uh, for these places. And, man, there was no way they could ever cover that uh, sort of thing. So, yeah, they, they struggled. Whatever reserves they wound up having or whatever tax base they could tap into just got obliterated very quickly for those small hospitals that never had much in the way of, of some sort of a, a reserve. So those are the ones that are going to to go away. And the sad thing is those rural hospitals, those really small hospitals, they're in the really small towns and they wind up representing usually the largest or second largest employer for that community. And so on top of providing health care for that that community that probably doesn't have another place to provide health care, also provide a large number of the jobs for that community and the good paying jobs for that community. So the ripples of what uh, a closure of that hospital have, yeah, directly on health care, but they're going to echo for uh, a lot of other people as well.
2: Well, the obvious way to to resolve the the uh, personnel shortage is to get more people in in the industry in the practice yeah. of medicine. What are you hearing from from young folks? Do they have an interest in this, uh, or are they seeing all the problems and saying saying I think I'm going to choose another career path?
5: I, I think you see people that are still interested in the in the. Uh, in the industry okay. i i my, or my oldest in medicine my, my oldest child is in is entering nursing school okay. so i don't think that it's it's that i think that uh the idea unfortunately of of sticking to mississippi is is we're still having the the brain drain yeah. uh, uh out of mississippi unfortunately and and we've got to stop uh, that leakage of the best of Mississippi outside of Mississippi. Couldn't agree more, and that obviously doesn't apply just to to healthcare
2: um, a, as a, um, a just a practice area, but it's really across all the various disciplines. We we've got to do the same. We've got great universities and college that turn out fantastic talent, but also often they either don't want to stay here when they graduate, or we don't have a place for it. That's
5: right. Yeah.
2: And uh, the, the more we can retain them, I think the better off the state would be overall. And it, again, it doesn't matter what the, the area of practice is or the profession is uh, in general. Uh, are you concerned, uh, either of you, that we're going to see the imminent closing of some of these rural
5: hospitals in the near future? I mean, Dr. Edney seems to think is imminent. I, I, I think it is. I think we're going to see a number of those hospitals in the next 18 months that, that will no longer have the doors open, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. hate
2: to see that because, they're, they're like you said, there are a lot of um, byproducts, negative byproducts of the closure of a healthcare institution besides the rendering of care. Of course, they're often the largest uh, employers in the area, and they do a lot for the community as well. They're, they're usually good co- community stewards. All the hospitals in these areas. Sure. So, appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, Enjoy the conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Video time, remember that? Pop-up video. (laughs) Oh, gosh. They made their own pop-up video with that one. Did Van Halen, the great Eddie Van Halen, the late great Eddie Van Halen. We are back uh, in the Element Well Studios. We've got Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman joining us in the studio at 12.05. Looking forward to that conversation. So, yep, the Biden budget. A uh, big article in the Wall Street Journal just released concerning the Biden budget. And guess what he wants to do? Tax you, tax you, tax you. They love taxes, don't they? Tax, tax, tax. This idea that by raising taxes, he's going to cut deficits by $3 trillion over 10 years. Please tell me. No clear thinking person believes that garbage. Never happens. He says that Wow, that the six point four trillion that the White House expects the federal government to spend this year is what's in the budget. Golly, that it would reduce the federal deficits just reading here by nearly three trillion over the next decade. Just not buying it, Joe. Go shovel that garbage elsewhere. And, of course, he says that um, he's, he's, po- he's posturing somewhat here, Rhino, I think, for this showdown on raising the federal debt limit. That's a lot of what's going on here, totally political. Not going to get enacted, but again, it's instructive. And, of course, he says he has a plan to make the Medicare trust fund Well, the key Medicare trust fund, which is, there are three, the one that pays the hospital bills, which, by the way, in 2028, the Medicare trustees, the trust fund report, says that in 2028, Medicare will not be able to pay hospital bills 100%. So we just had a discussion about the economic plight of the hospital industry, the healthcare industry, costs rising, revenues not keeping up, Medicare can't pay its bills in 2028, unless something's done. I'm disappointed to hear so many Republicans backing off of the notion of making some sort of spending cuts in the program, mainly by lifting the Retirement age, the eligibility age. They got so much pushback on that that they uh, they backed off on it and said, "Okay, we won't do that." So, bottom line is, we don't have anything. We, I've seen no plan, no plan whatsoever coming out of Republicans to shore up Medicare, shore up Social Security. Now they're and and you got Donald Trump saying, "Don't touch it, Republicans." And you know why he's saying it? So he can get elected. He knows it's got to be dealt with. He knows it. It's just simple math. Too much going out, not enough coming in. Meanwhile, get this, Rhino. This just happened. Over in France, where you, you take uh, leisure time, you have more of that than work. Oh well, yeah. Even while you're in working prime working
1: age, what they? It two weeks in the middle of August where the whole thing just shuts they down. They shut
2: the whole country down. What do they call that? There's some some name to describe it. Well, they just voted. The French Senate did to raise the retirement age from sixty two to sixty four, and this is triggered. Protests. They're out in the streets protesting. What do you mean I can't retire at 62 after working 10 years with full benefits? (laughs) This is nuts. We have absolutely diminished the value of work in this country and in the world. So we're talking about raising the age here to 70 to try to address the shortfalls, the economic financial shortfalls in Social Security and Medicare. Over there in France, they vote to raise it from 62 to 64. And they pour into the streets. Oh yeah, you thought they were
1: banning chocolate bread or something.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. It truly is. This is uh, what... The president says about his, um, about his plans, his budget, the budget director, Shalonda Young, participated in a conference call with reporters this morning, we will see tax policies here that say to the richest Americans and the largest corporations, you have to begin to pay your fair share. Such a lie. Define fair there, sweetheart. Define fair. It's fair that 1% of uh, income earners pay 42% of taxes. Do you know that we generated more revenue under the Trump tax cuts in the last fiscal year? This is just being reported as a percentage of GDP, than ever. So think about that, folks. Look at the total output of the nation, then look at the revenue from taxes we sent to the federal government as a percentage of the total nation's output. Highest ever. Meaning you're sending more to Washington than ever. Well, a great deal of the reason for that is wages are up, because of inflation, and you had a lot of folks who, because of bad policies, made a lot of money on investments, and they're paying taxes on it. So revenues are up. But they all told us, oh, it's because of the Trump tax cuts we're running all these deficits. No, revenues are the highest as a percentage of GDP ever in our history. And in fact, the, just the absolute value of the revenues we produced last year, that's the highest ever in our history. And we still can't make ends meet. Still can't make it meet. Because you just, I just told you that the plan is a, for a $6.4 trillion spending fiasco next year, pre-COVID, $4 trillion. It's up by 50% for years. And and there's no end in sight, because 70% of that is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all the other various entrenched redistribution programs, and then debt interest. That's 70% of spending, and both Republicans and Democrats have said, can't touch that. And Republicans say, you can't touch defense. Well, now we're at 85%, so the whole rest of government, which is 15%, the Democrats say you can't touch that. In fact, Joe Biden's proposing increasing the pay of all the people who work in all those agencies. And this is how we end up with $31 trillion in debt. The White House Budget Director, Shalanda Young, said the changes would ensure, quote, we can continue to invest in working families in this country, and we can continue to make sure the middle class can prosper, all while being fiscally responsible, bringing down the deficit by nearly $3 trillion. The CBO just last month, we shared it here on the air, says, yeah, in 10 years, the debt is going to nearly double. We're going to be going from $30 trillion to just under $50 trillion in a short 10 years based on current trajectory. And that's with all kinds of assumptions which are probably flawed, and if they were accurate and more realistic, it's probably more like $55 trillion in debt. All this crap about investing in working families, I get so tired of that trope. What the hell does that mean? What you ought to be focused on there, Joe Biden, is the dissolution of the traditional family. And you're engendering that with your twisted policies. That's the root cause of poverty in this country, of crime in this country, of deficits, of debt, of the blight we see across the landscape of our cities. That's the cause of it. But you won't say a word about that. Who is it, Gary and the Berg, that always texts us about that? He's right. He absolutely is. But you can't get those with any sort of microphone to say anything about it. Get your head chopped off. You're racist, misogynist, and whatever all the other isses are. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. And after the top of the hour, it's Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. Please stay with us. back in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. So the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget says that the budget plan the president just proposed would uh, place debt at 110% of GDP by 2033. That would be a record, of course. Wow. Tim in Cleveland says, was not at least part of the hospital labor problem their own fault? They were firing nurses who refused to be vaccinated and then turning around and hiring them back as travel nurses or whatever for a much higher wage. Well, I think that may have been a teeny tiny factor, but no, that's not the fundamental problem with the constrained constraint of labor what I heard from so many who hire these people for a living is that so many nurses just said, I don't want to do this anymore. COVID wore them out. Wore them out. You hear it? You're shaking your here. You hear oh, that, yeah. too? Yeah. It's just the stress, the strain, the long hours, the work. And so. Especially with the rise of travel nursing.
1: Right. Where you could go work somewhere for a month. And then you could take a month or two off, because you made as much in that one month as you would normally make in six.
2: Right. Jim from Caledonia says, Hospitals have really bad management, the hierarchy taking more than their fair share. So, Jim, what would you like to see happen? Should the government step in and dictate pay? That's socialism. The market doesn't dictate that? I think it does, honestly. Um, I honestly would argue, Rhino, and, I, and some people may disagree, I wouldn't do that job for the amount of money they make, even seven figures. I wouldn't do that. I could, first, I couldn't. I'm not qualified. Most of us aren't. That's why they make seven figures. I mean, we could make the same argument about professional athletes, performing artists. I mean, go down the list. So the market's the only fair arbiter of wages, and you could pay them zero and they're still upside down. It's, that's just simple math. I, I can't really comment on the management. Could they achieve greater efficiencies? Sure. Every organization can and should constantly be reviewing their operation to root out frivolous costs and achieve efficiencies. Absolutely. But I also know this. If a lot of what you're doing is going uncompensated, There ain't no amount of efficiencies that can offset free service. That's the more fundamental problem. I challenge anyone out there, how long could you make it at the same level if a fair amount of what you provided was done for free? Just tell your employer, hey, look, I I work 10 hours for free this week. I don't think most people would be willing to do that. Maybe you're an independent contractor. Yeah, I'll take care of your project there for nothing. That's what's happening in healthcare. Not making excuses for improper management, shoddy operational systems, whatsoever. But I do know that being paid, either at and not having any really control over it. It's not like you can say, "Well, we're raising our prices." I went to the Waffle House last night. Even that place has raised prices, like forty percent. It seemed to me like. Jeez. Seem like whatever I get used to cost thirteen bucks. Now it was seventeen bucks. Last night, I was shocked. So, should we tell them? No, you can't do that. That's what happens in hospitals. So they don't have that same level of control. I'm not making excuses for anybody. I'm, I'm just trying to inform on all the various dynamics. You heard both the doctors say, and they're right. There's so many moving parts, and there is. I know you have experience in the industry. It's nutty. That's why they have armies of admins, honestly, that Thomas, I know, grouses about all the time. Because it takes that just to figure out who the heck owes you, what they owe you, and to, more importantly, make sure they pay you. Because it's third parties involved. A bunch of third parties. And one of those third parties is the government. Which, by the way, I've heard this from numerous Healthcare providers and institutions, they're the best payer. It's the private companies that aren't very good. You're shaking your head. If you, oh yeah. It's the truth, is it not? It is. So honestly, the argument against Medicare for all, it loses a little of its luster in the provider community when you consider the fact that, well, they're pretty reliable about paying. They don't pay at the same level as the private guys. That's they're still upside down. But we don't have to fight them as much. We don't have to deal with them as much. it's, um, It's complicated. It's hard. That's why I say it needs a bunch of smart people to sit around the table and come together to try to put all ideas. We just need to have a big idea fest and use our collective knowledge to address these very complex, convoluted issues. Because he ain't going away. Coming right back with the Lieutenant Governor, Super Talk News, Fox News next.
0: And now, and now. the talk that keeps Mississippi talking.
4: That's what I like to listen to.
0: You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Hour 3 of Middays from the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. Joining us now in the studios is the Lieutenant Governor of the great state of Mississippi, hey. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. Hey. Thanks for coming
3: in. Thank you. Thank you, Gerard. We broke out of the Senate here. Uh, they're having some hearings, so we broke out here during lunch, and we'll be right back down there. I think the uh, next one, I think, is at 1 or one thirty.
2: Been pretty busy lately
3: it's been really busy and very productive i mean we have addressed you know used to be the old saying uh was that oh nobody does anything in election year well that doesn't apply to us (laughs) or at least our group uh we have we have been teeing up everything and uh been really a tremendous session so far and i'm uh we're clipping right along we had our deadline day yesterday got most everything back to the uh that we needed to come out to the house and and the things that we had to address for them so now we'll be going to conference on those bills and uh we'll now start the appropriations process and senator uh, briggs hobson will be starting that this afternoon uh he's, he's uh, had a meeting a little bit ago and now he is uh whole meetings i think beginning at two starting on the appropriation process so we'll be i encourage everybody to watch and won't your comments and whatnot. feels like you guys may finish a
2: couple of days early.
3: Planning on it. We, we always try to save taxpayer money. We, we're allocated 90 days. I'm, I'm going to be surprised uh, if we come anywhere near close to that. So we'll, uh, we'll cut back on the number of days we're in session and try to do the people's business in, a, in an orderly and, and uh, expeditious way.
2: And then it's uh, off to campaign, right? It's coming up. Yeah,
3: everybody goes to campaign. Uh, A lot of our our senators, thank goodness, didn't draw any opponents and whatever, so they'll they'll have a little bit easier time. But, you know, being a senator, or or certainly in a statewide office, but being a senator is pretty much a year-round thing now. Uh, Most of our people have uh, meetings with constituents about different things uh there are issues around the state uh rural hospitals have issues uh roads and bridges have issues Uh, i mean you'll see these and my senators will be having meetings with people all over whether they have an opponent or not and uh during the year then we we're we really like to have committee meetings George, you've seen that we had insurance we have everything from insurance to appropriations committee meetings we had a nicole boy did a great job this year on uh, looking at uh, after post-Dobbs, what we're going to do. And we have a number of different bills that that affect uh, children that have come out of the Senate based on those meetings. So you'll see uh, sometime right after the session, we do uh, take some time and look at what we need to do next year, and then they'll start having hearings about whatever the issue may be obviously rural hospitals will be one of them uh there'll be others and we'll have hearings during the year workforce development i talked to senator parker's done a great job with that uh the accelerate program met with ryan miller this morning uh, what they're doing uh which is just really expedited uh, people being able to identify what the jobs are and how you get educated for them so there'll there'll be a lot of meetings about that our career coaches have been just been array reviews And so you'll see career coaches uh, out in schools all over Mississippi.
2: Yeah, we were down at the uh, Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition yesterday. We talked to Ryan Miller on on the program and a couple folks from the Department of Education. That that program seems to be going well.
3: It is. And, uh, you know, what... We used to be a little bit more scattered, quite frankly, than we needed to be. Uh, like the Swift board was like 42 people on it. And, uh, I mean, you you had boards when you were in private inter- industry. And so you know a board needs to be the right size. And we had one too big. So we right-sized it to seven. Uh, the governor got some appointments. I got a couple. We put some really good people on there. They hired Ryan. And then we started really looking at... W- and identifying in each of eight ecosystems around the state it's been divided into eight spots what are the needs employment needs in this area and it may be the timber industry in one it may be cars in another one it could be ships on the coast Mm -hmm. what are the needs uh what what is the economic part and are we training in the community colleges to meet that need and of course nursing is part of it and a bunch of others but they really have um accelerated the uh, gap uh, uh, uh accelerate the process to get to a uh, really well-paying job and then this career coaches is a part of that where our kids have the opportunity to to see do they want to do X or Y or go to a university or go to a community college for a part-time but where where are you headed and how, how can we get you there the most economic way so we're real pleased and some of our community colleges have come along where they're doing tuition free now uh, if you take 15 hours at homes, uh, he's done a great job. So we're really pressing along to make sure that anybody that wants to get uh, an accelerated education can get one in Mississippi.
2: Yeah. So something that just uh, recently happened that uh, came out of the Senate, went to the House, got, mm-hmm. got passed, is, is the postpartum Medicaid mm-hmm. yep. coverage expansion. That's now headed to... The, uh, the yeah. Governor's desk he he has indicated, signaled that he he would in fact yeah. sign that. I had a conversation with Senator Blackwell last night, who of yeah. course is uh, a leader on health yeah. in, the health care in bill. Right, in the in the Senate. And and we were just talking about just thinking out of the box how, how can we address this problem of uninsured, un uncompensated care, uh, undercompensated care. Which is uh, causing financial difficulty for almost all of our hospitals, not just the rural ones. Yeah, uh, I just feel like, uh, Lieutenant Governor, we need to assemble, and I've said this on the show uh, before, folks from a, a broad spectrum of stakeholders, because this is something that affects a lot of people, not just those in the healthcare industry, not just those in the legislature, to you know say that hey, nothing's off the table, any ideas are welcome. Let's coalesce around some that maybe makes sense to
3: address this issue. Well, you shouldn't have said that, because I'm going to point you to the committee. (laughs) But you're exactly right, Gerard. That's where we're headed. This year, we allowed for community hospitals to merge together, and I want to talk about that a little bit. And rural Mississippi is just the heart of Mississippi, and that, that's where our, our heartbeat lies, and we need to make sure that it's taken well care of. So we had a, a group of individuals. We, we gave uh, appropriated $80 million to keep the hospitals basically afloat. Then we passed a bill that allows these community hospitals to aggregate and, and share services and then allocate what their delivery services is. And I met with the head of the Covington and McGee Hospitals, Hmm. Now, both of those were going bankrupt for a long time. Right. And this particular individual has merged the two of them together. They actually are doing well. And where he may have had five um, radiologists, he can use three, and they they station them between Collins and up the road in McGee. And they actually are doing well. So this, this concept that we can deliver services accurately enough, maybe not full-time everyday services, but accurately enough that you can get service dur- during a week's period, and that we can do that with a really a consolidated uh, delivery service has been done in Mississippi. In those hospitals, and that is, I think, a recipe for the rest of us to look at. So we're passing that bill this year, and we're giving some money to keeping the hospitals basically afloat in the interim period. But don't you Mm -hmm. feel like that's just short term, though? It is because what the big thing is, and you're right on this, is that we have to decide what is rural delivery of hospital of healthcare going to look at, and who's going to deliver it. Now you've got these FQHCs out there, these federally qualified health systems out there. You've got hospitals like. Greenwood, that basically the structure is too large for what the population is. Uh, I've been working with them. I went to that hospital. I walked those halls with those people. I have come up with a way, I think, to repurpose part of the hospital. Uh, in a medical way, uh, we've had the people go look at that. I had them come and go through the hospital with them, and, and that's making progress to repurpose some of that uh, hospital to do some psychiatric work, uh, quite frankly. And that will keep a lot of jobs and will also keep the infrastructure going. But we, we will have a committee this next year that will study how we're going to deliver health care. What is the standard of care in Mississippi? now i have some basics in my own mind and of course we'll see how how the group comes out with it but um i want emergency room care within 20 to 30 minutes of every human in mississippi so i want you within 20 minutes to be able to get to an emergency room uh, that that will cover a lot of different things then that primary health care services those internal medicine and OBGYN are really really important the others can be structured to be there different days and, and co- coordinated with other hospitals and stuff so that delivery itself and how it goes about is going to be critical I'm I'm really encouraged. Uh, I met with, I think, five or six hospitals yesterday. I went over their budgets with them, big and large. You'd know the names, um, rural hospitals and big ones. Uh, all of them uh, were negative numbers.
2: Yeah, all negative cash yeah, flow. one
3: in Greenwood, they gave me the financial. I don't mind sharing it with you. It was $20 million loss this year after the downsized. I checked.
2: The downsides. Home their auditor. I pulled them up here.
3: I've yeah. read it on the air before. They've had consistent losses for the
2: last five years, and, and the losses have just been trending upward
3: they have so I I have been out in out in places like Greenwood walking in these hospitals and talking to these people and as I said I had meetings yesterday I'm really hopeful that this this summer and this as we go through the election process we're not slowing down for next year uh, because somebody will need to be doing this so I'm I am uh, very much on point with exactly what you're thinking. Okay. We need to get all our hospitals, our people that are even these cares, and all the rest of us—doctors and everybody else—in a room and figure it out. We're taking a break. We're coming right back uh, with Thank another you. segment
2: with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. Please stay with us. Back in the Element Wealth Studios with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, so so you got the, these three measures that look like they're they're going to happen. Uh, I say three is is a way to address the uh, the healthcare financial situation state. Right. You got the eighty million dollar grant program, mm-hmm. um, which. It's going to help some, but when you got a Greenwood LaFleur scheduled to lose about 22, 23 million, that's one out of 120 something hospitals um, in the state. That's a quarter of that money for one year. Uh, Maybe it can sort of help them regroup, perhaps retrench, restructure,
3: uh, and pay the bills at the
2: same time. You got this grant program for nurses.
3: We do and we're trying we, we have about we think somewhere between three and four, thousand nurses short. So we've got a grant program for nurses where we pay six, thousand dollars every year uh, on your debt and everything else to become a nurse as long as you stay in Mississippi. So we, we're, we're starting on that. that takes a while. Uh, there'll be a good bit of push um, in, to expand the nursing program. Pearl River needs some additional. Mississippi University Women has a great uh, nursing program. Um, Gulf, Stokes, Gulf States has one. Most of these community colleges have a program. Yeah. So we're looking at their capacity. Some of them need a little bit more room. Some of them need more teachers. Uh, teachers are harder to come by because... Um, Quite frankly, they make more money in the private market than they can teach in a community college.
2: And then there's the, uh, the consolidation bill that, that allows the hospitals to, to pair up, uh, to consolidate. That, so i got to ask you a question. This mm-hmm. is what I, I hear a lot from the public, is there's a perception that, that this particular measure, this consolidation uh, bill, would enable UMC to acquire hospitals, but it would not allow private hospitals. To combine, to acquire, or be acquired.
3: Can you talk about that? No, there. Um, UMC um, is in Grenada, in Lexington, I think. I think that's right. I think yeah. that's the only ones. They had a couple several years ago. They got a bill passed that they could uh, have these joint venture agreements, but that's never really materialized. So there's right. not a they're not going out and acquiring anything because uh they got to make the numbers work too. same problem. Problems. I'm not I'm not at all worried about UMC taking over all of the all of the rural health hospitals here I think they will end up being mainly a community based uh system yeah. so I'm, I I don't think that that's something we should really concern about and UMC has its own issues yeah. uh its own expense issues you know the governor vetoed like 50 million dollars to redo their internal hospital where they teach doctors over there right so they i don't see them in an expansionist model okay. i see things like covington and mcgee going on where i see these hospitals that are co-located in short distances from each other um amalgamating their their delivery of services that's probably the most likely thing is going to happen i I'm, I'm not at all concerned about that and there's no and there's no uh, quite frankly in in the senate side anyway there's there's no real impetus for, for an additional money for the University of Mississippi Medical Center to go be doing that. Okay. So I don't and think Senator Finnegan,
2: I think, when, when this was being deliberated, mm-hmm. discuss... Uh, perhaps some combination with Forest General and another nearby uh, institution. I don't remember which yeah, one. But I think he talked about yeah, that. There, yeah, there's
3: one uh, there's the former Methodist. It's right down the street from Forest General okay. and um, I think you'll see some hub and spoke okay. here like you know where, where you may have a Forest General with uh, two or three outlying places. That could happen. Uh, they're a county-owned hospital. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, There'll be an amalgamation but what, what we want to do is have everybody make sure that we have a base delivery of services for rural Mississippi. That's what we need to have. And it, we have economic challenges, as you know, to do that and others. But we need to keep our eye on the ball there, um, and how, whether you know what may work in Hattiesburg may not work in McGee. Yeah.
2: You know, the the subject of Medicaid expansion has been a very hot topic, mm-hmm. uh, to say the least, uh, since it's been available, and that was, began in 2014 mm-hmm. <laughs> when the Affordable Care Act extended coverage uh, that the federal government would pay for to the able-bodied working adult Mm -hmm. group. That's what it is. Uh, It appears to me at this point that while that may cover and reimburse some
3: hospitals for some present unreimbursed care, Mm -hmm. I don't think this fundamentally solves the problem. No. And I've, I've tried to say that before. People get running in a circle about, oh, goodness, we can't do that or that, but that's not the answer. Um, expansion of Medicaid is not the answer. At least, at, at least in Mississippi, where we're where we're looking at, we have um, we have certain pockets of things I think we can do better, like postpartum, yeah. now, which the governor has come on with in the house passed yesterday. Um, uh, those that makes sense to, for working mothers to have that additional twelve months, and probably not only makes health sense, it makes economic sense because we keep babies out of the NICU. But, you know, those are the things that you look at, something like that. But just a blanket uh, expansion, it could be very expensive. Uh, the numbers are a little bit hazy. We first have to get our act together here before we ever start talking about anything like that.
2: Yeah. All right, let's talk about uh, PERS. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about that. I think you are, too.
3: Very. Um, uh, we were kind of surprised this year. Uh, we got a letter that said they were going to raise uh, 5%. And when I looked at it, um, it got even the more I looked at, it, the worse it got. Because they t- turns out they lost like four or five billion dollars this year on their investments. I assume you were not doing their investments. I'm not. Uh, no, no. That's good. <laughs> uh, but in any event, they lost a lot of money. Yeah. And they asked for a five percent increase. I think, which is about two hundred fifty or three hundred million dollars in that range of of additional funds, which wouldn't make up for. Five billion dollar losses. Obviously, I'm, I'm
2: gonna interrupt you for a second. I just want to yeah. explain. So the so the board has the authority to increase the employer contribution. Right. They they uh, decided as a board as a body to increase it by five percent. That's, That's essentially correct. increasing the state's taxpayer's share of the money that we contribute to PERS.
3: Absolutely. It's like, uh, that's the only exception I know that the legislature is the only one that can increase taxes, the exception is the PERS. That's true. Yeah. So with that, um, there was some, uh, I was not a party to this, but the House had some discussions with them, and then I got another letter, Uh, we had a number of other matters we were working on, I got another letter saying they were going to postpone that and study it uh, through the fall. And come back with something to the legislature next year, and so I'm anxious to see, you know, what what their solutions are on there. So obviously, we hope they didn't have another negative return like right. that. Um, Five billion dollars is a lot. Of, that's a lot to make up with, with working people's dollars.
2: And they're somewhat. We should point out somewhat restricted on how they can allocate their their assets.
3: Portfolio. I, I know yeah. there are some restrictions on it, but I, uh, I was. I, I would be hopeful that we don't have another loss like that. Yeah. Right, so I, I'm going to leave that up to them. They've got they got a board and the state treasurer's on it and a bunch of others. So I'm hopeful that they'll come up with a with a positive solution. We have an irrevocable a commitment to to funding that. Right. So there's not, this, this is not a question about funding or people getting their benefits. That, that's not the question. It's just how much is it going to be.
2: But the bottom line is increasing the employer contribution rate by 5% means that state spending increases to cover that with respect to state agencies are concerned. It also means that municipalities and, and counties and other public sector entities, correct. their expenses go
3: up. That is correct.
2: Uh, let's talk about the ballot initiative process. You and I have okay. discussed that before. so. Um, I, I think the big sticking point between the House and Senate has been the signature mm-hmm. threshold. The Senate, um, y- you talked about that last time you and I were right. on the program, uh, wanted a 12% of registered voters. That turns out to be about 240,000 signatures. The House's version is back down to what it was uh, after an amendment, I think, yesterday to the – 12 percent of the ballots cast in the last gubernatorial election, that's about 110,000. So there's 130,000 or so gap between mm-hmm. the chambers on
3: this. Where do you see that going? Well, I see it going to conference, you know, the House passed the bill this year, the Senate, uh, I mean the Senate, Senate passed the yeah. uh, The House didn't pass an initiative this year. Uh, I have been for the initiative um, for a long time, and um, when the House didn't pass one, uh, we had one passed in the Senate and sent over there um, when I first saw the report um, they had pretty much adopted the Senate version it was pretty close um, and they were came out of committee that way and I pr- appreciate Representative Shanks and, uh, and Senator Polk and Senator Johnson all of them that have worked on that then apparently yesterday there must have been some change uh, right. I haven't seen the amendment but we were very close on the one that came out of committee and I was hopeful that we'd Put that to bed. One yeah, way or they, another. Pulled, they pulled it back. So I guess the conference will have to sort all that out. There will be a conference committee, and they'll get together. And I'm, um, I'm hopeful that we'll have an initiative process. They, they um, had, had made some good suggestions, like you can't uh, approve abortion, for example, those kinds right. of things. There were several good su- suggestions from the House. So I hope, I hope that our conference committee. We'll work something out, and we get it on the ballot in November.
2: Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman has been our guest here. Appreciate you coming in, Lieutenant Governor. It's good to see you, sir. Jordan. I appreciate
3: yep. it. We're, we're, everybody watch. We're live down there. So um, <laughs> when I came in, we put everything live, committee meetings and everything else. So y'all watch what we're doing, and uh, we appreciate everybody's input. Email us, call us, send us a note, whatever.
2: Half an hour left on middays. Please stay with us. We're in the Element Wealth Studios.
0: with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Just as I
5: thought it was going all right I found out I'm wrong When I thought it was right It's always the same It's just a shame That's all I could say,
2: Well, I just saw, uh... Tell me during the break, it's
5: the same. It's just
2: my presently favorite candidate for president, Vivek Ramaswamy, was being interviewed. and in, He's been making the rounds. Yes, And on the screen, a couple of sets of bullet points of his presidential platform, which, of course, we shared is ending affirmative action in the federal government is one which I wholeheartedly support. He wants to eliminate the Department of Education. He wants to mobilize the military to patrol the border. And uh, those, those were at least three of the things that were pretty high on his list. I'm with him on all of those. You're seeing now a move in the Congress by the GOP to deem the cartels as terrorists. I saw where, was it Senator Hawley asked someone, and I, I heard it. I'm sorry that I didn't catch who the person was on the Hill answering the questions, but the question, paraphrasing a bit, was, are more people dying from domestic white supremacist or fentanyl? which was a pretty valid question. And the person answering it said, I don't know how many people are dying, essentially, because of white supremacy and institutional racism and all that stuff. But was familiar with the number dying of fentanyl? Significant. To the point where almost every death reported of a minor as in 18 and below. Fentanyl. Almost concluded without even knowing for sure it being confirmed. Really incredible. But uh, Vivek at least is calling attention to some of the craziness, which I think is good. You probably or you may not have seen, maybe you did, the report that Once again in this crazy, is it Fairfax County, Virginia, which seems to be the ground zero for all the wackiness happening in public schools, that white people and Asian students are not allowed to participate in like pre-college sort of coursework to help instruct one, a student, on taking tests and preparing for college and maybe understanding where they're more most suited for a career that they're being banned from. <laughs> In the name of equity, of course. We can't help them. we got to help these other people over here while we're just excluding them. If you think about it, is that not really, Rhino, what diversity, equity, and inclusion is? It's exclusion. That's what they really ought to call it. Because that's how they achieve it. That's how they check the box and say, our work's done here. We met our goals. We excluded all these other people.
1: That's why they've had to change the definition of racism in the last decade, decade and a half.
2: It's unbelievable. Now it
1: has to include an element of power. Yeah. And the only reason they do that is because it precludes them
2: from being accused of it. (laughs) Man, oh man. So, um, where is it? Larry Mize wanted, wanted to know about the income tax or school choice when we had the lieutenant governor here. Larry, i got to tell you that you got a short period of time, and, you know, I try to pick the topics that uh, I think are are of most interest, and you can't bat a thousand if I had him for a longer period of time, and he'll be back on. We'll get to those. You know I've asked about those topics in the past. It's just it's compressed, and uh, we get as much done as we can. I can tell you that at this point, I didn't talk about income tax because it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere this year. So I didn't ask that question. I think his position, I don't think, has changed dramatically since the last time we had this discussion with the lieutenant governor regarding the income tax. It doesn't seem to be for a, a, a full elimination is is um, more an advocate of a one-time rebate. He said that on, on this show. He said that on Paul's show as well. School choice is a source of frustration to me, Larry, in that I have been advocating for universal school choice and involved in the organization primarily focused on that. As an advocacy organization that's in Power, Mississippi, since its inception in 2014, and there just doesn't seem to be a huge appetite amongst the lawmakers to implement universal school choice. uh, We did get a charter school bill done, and we have a small number of charter schools. Honestly, we've got the dyslexia scholarship, the special needs ESA, but universal school choice, the way it was just passed in Arkansas, to a lot of fanfare, by the way. And uh, Governor Kim Reynolds in Iowa also championed such legislation. Arizona, Utah also. I'd love to see it here, Larry. I'm all for it. And... um, the income tax, you're wrong about that. Larry says it's not going in anywhere because of him. That's simply not true, Larry. I've talked to these people in private, in both chambers. There's more opposition than you think. There's concerns about future revenues. Of course, the way the legislation would have been structured, the uh, elimination would be phased in over a period of time, but certain Revenue targets would have to be achieved in order to move to the next um, element of the phase, the, ne- the next to cut in the phasing out of the income tax. You know, based on the economic projections at this point where the yield curve of federal treasuries Is now now shows the biggest gap since we've had since 1981. I was around in 1981. It was bad. From a recessionary perspective uh, and an interest rate perspective, and it was all because Fed Chairman Paul Volcker sought to rid the country of what was outrageous inflation. Way worse than what we have today. And he did so by boosting interest rates to where mortgage rates were double digits, almost approaching 20%, which was insane. Uh, So now we're looking at another situation where the inverted yield curve is foretelling of a recession in the uh, near future, likely in the third and fourth quarter. We got the jobs report today, unemployment claims up. Fed actually likes that uh, because it it signals uh, – I should say investors actually like that because it signals to the Fed that, hey, maybe this inflation thing will start coming down. The theory is when folks are out of work, they got less money to spend, and and uh, prices begin to stabilize, stabilize, investors generally welcome the news of higher unemployment claims in a hawkish Fed period, which is what we're experiencing right now, because it means, well, maybe the Fed will stand down on future rate increases, or the rate at which they increase, maybe even pivot, but there's something else going on today since then, Rhino, because the Dow has turned negative, now it's down 200, and futures started out ahead in advance of the unemployment report. kind of down a little bit, fairly flat, and then after the unemployment report, they celebrated it, and the in the markets opened, Dow went up, NASDAQ, all three indexes up, now down again. I wonder if it's got something to do with Biden's budget plan, even though they know it's dead on arrival. Something's spooking the money markets. I'm not really sure. Larry, I would also venture to say that if we have a different lieutenant governor in the next cycle, we won't get tax elimination under a new lieutenant governor either. I think there's enough, enough opposition uh, in both houses that, that are just standing in the way. And, and as you recall last year, the original bill, which would have increased sales taxes somewhat. It, um, gosh, it got bad reaction, and it would have eliminated the income tax on a very short time, uh, over a very short number of years. It got a lot of negative reaction from uh, the people, and so we came back with a revised version of that, which would have phased it in over a much longer period of time and had these these revenue targets and thresholds. And then we couldn't get that through the Senate, but it looks like this year we're not even getting anything out of the House. So Tim McGee says, uh, like my House member who I've never seen voted against the income tax elimination. Well, there you go. He also says, I'm not for expanding welfare, but I'm also not for turning anyone away. We can't let people die, or I couldn't. Bottom line, I don't have an answer. It's very hard. I agree. Coming right back, final segment on Midday. Stay with us.
0: Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
2: If you want to drive a big limousine, I'll buy the longest one you've ever seen. We are back in the Element Well Studios, the final segment on Middays on this. Friday right Eve. So, um, I'm not sure what it's meant. A lot of earths? I'm reading on the C Spire text line. I don't know. UMC nurses are quitting because our pay, I assume this person is a nurse at UMC, let us know, is a lot less than everybody else in the area. The only people at UMC that are making seven figures, six figures is all of the higher up unnecessary people. Nurses are not making six figures. Well, I've had reports from, again, friends, contemporaries uh, who run hospitals who said they are paying six figures. And in the, the health care forum, I moderated uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago. Now, many of those, granted, are contract, are coming from these so-called traveling organizations. But once again, this is where the market has to dictate pay. Simple as that. I, I, you can, Again, get rid of all the so-called higher-ups and all their pay. It amounts to, like, teeny-tiny squat petty cash. That doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't address the issue of people receiving care and not paying for it. None of that does. We could sit here and work diligently, tirelessly, endlessly on trimming expenses. But that still won't solve the problem of providing care for nothing. That won't solve that problem. That's the fundamental problem. Louie from the 662 says, What about the hugely excessive charges by the medical profession? I wore a heart halter for a week to determine if I was experiencing AFib. My results were sent to a secondary cardiology group to read the results. My bill from them for only reading the results over 700 bucks. This is what has to change. Well, I'll tell you how we change it, Louie. It's the same thing as you hear the... The complaint's all the time, right, Rhino? It's got the $20 aspirin. Yeah, because you paid for it. The 50 people that didn't pay for it, that's who you're paying for. It. Yeah, that's what happened here, Louie. I agree, 700 bucks sounds outrageous. But it's all the people who had the exact same treatment, same services, that paid zero. That's where the problem is. Or they, they were um, covered under Medicare or Medicaid, which pays a whole lot less for that than you did. That's the fundamental problem. That's that's why those that have private coverage um, have these outrageous bills and see these crazy charges. I agree, but that is a direct function of all the uninsured, unreimbursed care. If the hospitals and the healthcare industry and providers, pharmaceutical companies. Pharm- pharmacies, if they could all say if you can't pay, we can't help you then it wouldn't be 700 bucks. Louie, it'd be $200 i am guessing. I don't know how much of that is, a, is factored into that price but it's significant when you look at the amount of under-reimbursed and unreimbursed that's what's so screwed up about the whole dang thing it's like I've said before it's going to the McDonald's and there's five prices on a Big Mac you show your card to determine what price you get. That, that's the hard part about this. So, and it's not as if you can say, well, you don't need that car, you don't need those sneakers, you don't need that person. I agree, there's all kinds of abuse out there of government benefits. It's bad. We should root it out. But, but when you show up at a health care provider's office, and you're in dire need of some sort of medical treatment, I just don't think they're going to say, I'm sorry, I need to see if you can pay. And if you can't, you need to make a deposit before I treat your stroke. You ever seen that happen, Rhino? No. Not going to. So how do we address that problem? You're not going to tell the baby born at UMC prematurely and the mother and father and family... You know, it's going to cost $2 bucks to nurse this baby to health. I'm sorry, it's just going to have to die. Not going to happen. Do you have insurance? No. Can you pay $2 million? No. Okay, we got it. And then what happens is poor guys like Louie may pay $700 for a procedure, a treatment regimen that shouldn't be nearly that high. That's, that's the question. How do we address that? And while I agree with the lieutenant governor and many others that Medicaid expansion is not an exclusive solution, because that all that really does is extend Medicaid coverage to one coverage group that presently has no insurance. I totally agree that that's not a solution. But what I do know is that they're still going to get care. And often they don't get primary care, preventative care. And then they end up with more serious situations that cost way more money to treat, and nobody pays for it except you and me and our insurance and our out-of-pocket costs. That's what's got to be addressed. Again, it's going to take some smart people coming around. Ben asked about PERS losing $5 billion um, last year. Um, I looked at that. They have a $30 billion portfolio. We'll talk about it tomorrow in the Element Wealth Studios. Stay safe and God bless.
0: A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.